I bet you already heard of Bayesian non-parametrics models, at least on this very podcast. We already talked about Dirichlet processes with Karin Knudsen on episode 4, and then about Gaussian processes with Elisaveta Semenova on episode 21. Now, we're going to dive into the mathematical properties of these objects to understand them better, because, as you may know, Bayesian non-parametrics are quite powerful, but also very hard to fit. Along the way, you'll learn about probabilistic circuits, some product networks, and what a delight you'll hear from the Julia community. Indeed, my guest for this episode is no other than Martin Trapp. Martin is a core developer of Turing.jl, an open source framework for probabilistic programming in Julia, and a postdoc in probabilistic machine learning at Alto University, Finland. Martin loves working on subproduct networks and Bayesian non-parametrics, and indeed, his research interests focus on probabilistic models that exploit structural properties to allow efficient and exact computation while maintaining the capability to model complex relationships in data. In other words, Martin's research is focused on tractable probabilistic models. Martin did his master's in computational intelligence at the Vienna University of Technology and just finished his PhD in machine learning at the Graz University of Technology. He doesn't only like to study the tractability of probabilistic models, he also is very fond of climbing. This is Learning Bayesian Statistics, episode 36, recorded November 10, 2020. <music> Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics, a fortnightly podcast on Bayesian inference, the methods, the projects, and the people who make it possible. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country, and reach a true Bayesian state of mind by visiting learnbayesstats.com. That's learnbayesstats.com. Do you want to support the podcast and unlock exclusive Bayesian swag at the same time? Then you can visit my Patreon page at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Starting at 3 euros, you can get various benefits like the private MBS Slack channel, early access to special episodes, selecting questions for episodes, or even coming on the show. You'll get more details at patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks a lot, folks. I'm very grateful for any support you can bring. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian and change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Wes Bayesian is someone who cares about evidence and doesn't jump to assumptions based on intuitions and prejudice. A Bayesian makes predictions on the best available info and adjusts the probability because every belief is provisional. And when I kick a flow, mostly I'm watching eyes widen, maybe because my likeness lowers expectations of tight rhyming how would i know unless i'm rhyming in front of a bunch of blind men dropping placebo controlled science like i'm richard Feynman. hello my favorite patients i'm proud to say that this episode of the learning patient statistics podcast is brought to you by tidelift tidelift is making open source work better for everyone users companies and car developers make sure to listen to their dedicated segment during the show to discover how they help open source software and by the way, if your company wants to support this podcast, raise its brand awareness, or put its job ads in front of the right people, just get in touch with me and we'll see what we can do together. Folks, I have great news for you. The first matchmaking dinner is out, featuring Will Kurt and Jun Peng Lao. Our conversation spanned multiple topics, including can model building be truly creative? Can Bayesian inference even be simplified? Should statisticians be more vocal politically? I also got to ask two questions at the end of the show. 
otherwise you know it's not fun so get your headphones forks and napkins and as usual do reach out with comments feedback and suggestions note that this new format is released exclusively for patrons of the show so make sure to check out patreon.com slash stats if you want to listen and i'll take this opportunity to thank you patrons for your continued support thanks a lot for being so awesome in particular i'd like to thank my brand new supporters especially those in the full posterity or higher hugo pota vin guyen and raul maldonado raul was already a patron and he just graded his pledge so thanks a lot raul and thanks for being so active in the lbs slack channel now let's listen to martin trap shall we martin trap Welcome to Learning Bayesian Statistics. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. Always great to catch up with the Julia community. And I even more appreciate it because I know you are in the middle of an intra-EU move. So things are not easy these days. We are recording again in the middle of a lockdown. So thanks a lot for doing this. You're welcome. And actually, we're going to get to where you are moving, actually, and what you are going to do there. But first, let's talk about your background, because it seems like you were into software engineering and machine learning from the start of your undergrad studies, actually. What's your story? And also, how did you come to the world of statistics? Because I feel like you're more from the computer science and software engineering side. Yeah, yeah, I'm definitely more from the computer science side. So I studied my bachelor's in software engineering. And this is kind of, so the, in the end of my bachelor's studies, I joined a, a team, a RoboCup team. So there's a, RoboCup is sort of like an international organization where we have robots fighting against each other on soccer games or competing in rescue missions and stuff like this. And this was kind of the first time I sort of touched ground with artificial intelligence, if you could say so, or machine learning, or applied statistics. And did this for, for a little bit longer than my studies went on. And then usually you have the big question, what are you going to do afterwards? So I didn't really want to stay in software engineering. So I decided to sort of, to me, I felt like switching fields. It's maybe not so much of a switching of fields, but so decided to do something else, something more towards all of this AI stuff that was interesting and exciting at the time. And then, yeah, they studied at the Technical University in Vienna, computational intelligence, which is largely focusing on logic, mostly because the, so Vienna is, as you probably know, is, is kind of like a hotspot of logic and has tradition in logic. So to uh, so learn lots of things about this. And in addition, there were some courses about machine learning. And I also, at the time, was working at a institute which is called ViaVis, so it's a visualization and virtual reality research center, private research center in Vienna, where I worked um, part-time on the site, doing some image processing. and. At that time, there was the sort of like the pre-deep learning era. So people would still like feature engineer the feature detectors and would use some more basic machine learning techniques like random forest or support vector machines and stuff like this. And sort of kind of quickly realized that the interesting part in all of this is essentially the machine learning part of it, in my opinion. <laughs> 
other computer vision people might disagree with. So it was kind of obvious for me to sort of try to sort of find a, a position, a PhD position in machine learning and try to continue in this direction. And I did a lot of work towards sort of probabilistic machine learning. So they applied though, but in this direction simply because I think it's more the standard in medical image analysis. So I worked on sort of biomedical images, mostly because you want to know about something about the uncertainties of your of your predictions, right? You don't just want to have like a binary classification result at the end. And then I sort of moved on and kind of ended up in uh, doing probabilistic machine learning research with surprisingly strong focus on Bayesian methods, I'd say, or tractable models. That was not necessarily intentionally. And so I kind of gradually went into more and more statistics topics. I can't really tell whether there was like one moment where I got sort of into stats topics. It was just more like a gradual... A drift. Drift, yeah, yeah, maybe a bit unconscious. Yeah, but that's funny. I mean, yeah, it was like a drift, but at the same time you found it interesting, so... Yes, definitely, yeah, 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 of course. I mean, the drift is, of course, because those were the topics that were interesting for me. Yeah, yeah exactly. It may be that you actually didn't know that these topics would be interesting for you, and so, like, you had been doing some software stuff, but Actually, like the stats side of things was more appealing to you. And in the end, you became aware of that and were able to kind of switch. So that's great. I mean, it's really something also that's really, that's really great, uh, I find, in, in these kind of fields that are more directed to like prone to numbers and coding. It's like, it's not because you didn't study that since you were four, that you can't do that anymore if you would like to do that professionally. I mean, if you're able to do that on your own, especially with open source now, if you want to learn all of this on your own, even if you don't have the right degrees, you can do that. Like with time, you can, and patience and effort, you can get to there. I think it's really inspiring. Yes. I think that the great thing about coding in general is that it's a very good tool to to sort of better understand abstract concepts. Yeah. So no matter what concepts those are, it might be in statistics or, or general mathematics, I think coding is a great tool for you to sort of not just understand the concept in an abstract way, but, but actually to be able to try to realize that and try to see sort of what are actually the, the nitty-gritty details of it. And that's actually quite cool to, I think it's quite a good thing to know about. Yeah, definitely. I really relate to what you're saying there. And actually it echoes like one of a recent experience I had. I'm starting to write a book about patient statistics with uh, Ariel Abril, who I think you will meet next year. I don't know, I have a feeling. And yeah, like in one of the chapters, we're talking about the curse of dimensionality. And that's the kind of topics that are both super hard to understand and super hard to explain because like by definition, a lot of dimensions and our brain are, uh, have a lot of troubles there. And so in the chapter to kind of teach that and teach that to myself also while talking to Colin Carroll, who is a PyMC and RV Skardev, he really helped me understand this concept by just giving me an abstract example. And then I could code that up in a Jupyter notebook and like I coded different dimensions and so on. And really saw, you know, like the principle that if you're taking a point estimate, then the more dimensions you add, the further the population of points gets from the point estimate you're taking. It's like, and it really clicked. 
with me, like just doing these kind of stupid histograms of norms of the vectors, I really could saw that the more dimensions, the further they get. It's all how you understand, okay, that's why we tell people on the PyMC discourse not to initialize their HMC sampler at the maximum at posteriori. Because like, otherwise you can get stuck there and the sampler can't get to the typical set. And so I was like really blown away. I was like, ah, oh, that's awesome. I, thanks to this stupid simulation in a notebook, as you said, just some code and plus, I was able to cross a threshold in my understanding of the curse of dimensionality. And I mean, it's really, it's really something awesome I found. And that's how to like get closer. You know, I'm sure now there are other parts of the curse of dimensionality I don't understand. <laughs> but at least that I understand and I can go to these other parts I still don't understand, you know. Yeah, yeah. I think especially this is like a very good example to because it's relatively easy to implement, right? And to uh, yeah. to realize that's probably very impressive to see what it means if you also increase the dimensionality. Yeah, exactly. So thank you, Colleen, if you are <laughs> listening to us for this really fruitful conversation. <laughs> okay, let's get back to you now and uh, your background, because you already mentioned a bit patient methods and and so on, but do you remember how you first got introduced to Bayesian methods and why did you find them attractive at the time? I think I first got introduced into Bayesian methods through university courses. I don't think it necessarily clicked when I got introduced. I think it's one of the things that you sort of learn because it's on the course schedule. And, and then I didn't really do much towards Bayesian methods for most of the time. Um, until I started my PhD and sort of started reading more into all kinds of approaches and eventually what I was working on, so this uh, Sunprog Networks, which is also still sort of like my core research topic, sort of is something that arose from, from Bayesian networks, which is not necessarily what you would understand as, I'd say, Bayesian statistics, but always already goes a little bit in this direction. And I was cross-reading a lot of other works. And I think I kind of stuck with Bayesian methods. Also, more gradually, more and more, I was working uh, on probabilistic machine learning, mostly because it feels like the right way to do stats, I'd say. So it, to me, it intuitively feels like a good idea to do that's a, more in a Bayesian way. And then I, I got introduced to Bayesian non-parametrics, got quite excited about Bayesian non-parametrics. I think this is a very interesting field of research, even though the hype is over. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I think it's still very interesting. Um, yeah, so it's again more like a gradual thing, I'd say. But mostly because it feels like it's the correct way to do that, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, I see what you mean there. So I think for me, it's more from the modeler perspective, right? You want to model something and you want to encode assumptions yeah. that you make on whatever you're interested in modeling and explicitly incorporating those modeling assumptions just feels like the right way to do it, I think. Yeah, I see. I see. And so how often do you use these kind of methods today? Like, do you often use patient methods in your research, in your papers to exclusively work on that? Or what's the share here? Yes, I don't exclusively use patient methods. Because I also don't think you necessarily have to be Bayesian all the time. Yeah, I do tend to be mostly interested in Bayesian approaches. So the majority of my research, I'd say, is on, on Bayesian methods. So I worked on 
on a Bayesian formulation for some product networks. And I worked on some framework where we use techniques from some product networks to learn Gaussian processes efficiently. So a lot of the stuff I'm doing is sort of in the Bayesian domain, but I'm not sort of completely fixed on Bayesian starts, I'd say. And I mean, of course, my work with Turing is also towards Bayesian learning. And when it comes to more applied research, because I haven't been doing applied research for many years now, before that, I never actually used Bayesian methods for applied research. So it was all sort of hacky, sort of machine learning techniques that I wouldn't call Bayesian. Yeah, that's interesting. And now you're using that more into your applied research? Like, are you using Turing a bit more in your research, for instance? A little bit, but it's most of the stuff I'm doing is not so much on applied research, but more on sort of developing algorithms or developing tools, I'd say. So I'm hoping to do a little bit more also on the side towards applied research, but I must admit, I haven't done much <laughs> applied research lately. So I, I don't know, maybe it's going to be more in the future, but we'll see. Yeah. And Turing, I think, is I was initially in a project which was language discovery in robots, where we indeed used Turing in the background for some experiments, had a Bayesian model for this for this language learning task, and that worked great. But apart from that, I haven't been using Turing as a user so much as I've been developing for Turing. Yeah. Like it reminds me a bit of how Chatcher, for instance, works on Sosta.jl. He said that in the episode, like he was actually very focused on developing soft and like doing that, he wasn't using a lot of models, like, and he wasn't developing a lot of models actually, but he was developing sauce a lot. <laughs> so it was quite funny. It was episode 13 for people who are interested to, to go back and listen to this. Um, it's actually a pretty nice episode. So go back in and listen to Chad. And actually you, Martin, can you explain to listeners the fields that you're working in. It's quite theoretical. Yes, I think it depends on who you ask. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, from my point of view, it's quite theoretical. Yeah, so most of my research is what we would nowadays call in probabilistic circuits or on probabilistic circuits. So on models that allow tractable inference. So you can do certain kind of computations efficiently and exactly. And there are some classes of models that allow you to do this. And I'm particularly interested in those that fall into the category of probabilistic circuits and some part networks are one instance of those, so to say. And I think this is actually very interesting and exciting, this whole line of research, in a way also because it's sort of, it's not a complex black box approach, like you might have it in some of the modern deep learning techniques, but instead, because it's an explicit likelihood model, it's still quite easy to understand what is happening. You can give guarantees and you can sort of really nicely, always recursively prove things if you like. And it's essentially just applying a few sort of tricks. And those few tricks allow you to do computations efficiently, which is kind of cool. So this is the stuff I've been doing mostly. And... Then I've been involved with Turing a little bit, did a little bit towards probabilistic programming, even though I wouldn't consider myself like a probabilistic programming guy. I think I have a bit of experience in it. I did some work in that and I'm continuing doing some work in that. But there are definitely people who have way more experience in probabilistic programming than I have. And then uh, because I've always been excited about Bayesian non-parametrics, 
actually, my initial ideas was to sort of work on some port networks and have a sort of non-parametric, Bayesian non-parametric formulation of some port networks. So one big problem of uh, some port networks is essentially that you sort of have to come up, it's the same problem sort of that you have with all other new network type of architectures, right? Is that you have to come up with the model architecture or the model structure in some way. Right? This is kind of in deep learning, this is partially the magic in deep learning is to, to have an engineer that knows how to design your artificial neural network. That it is learns well and is efficient and can perform a new task well and so forth. And in some product networks, we're very limited to the structures that we can actually have. So it's a much more restricted set in order to be able to give those guarantees that we can do inference exactly. And so I was curious whether we can actually use tools from Bayesian learning to infer probability distribution over structures. And my hope was to make this non-parametric because that would be even cooler. <laughs> and so I started off doing a lot of reading and coding towards uh, Bayesian non-parametrics and also did some contributions later for Turing on Bayesian non-parametrics and I'm still continue doing stuff like this. And also my latest paper was sort of a connection of probabilistic circuits and Bayesian non-parametrics. So this is kind of the other topic I'm quite excited about. I'm not, I'm more from the applied side there. So uh, I know people that do much more theoretic work and it's very exciting what they do, but I'm definitely much more on the modeler side or just basically using a tool from Bayesian non-parametrics, let's say, or developing a set of inference schemes for Bayesian non-parametrics rather than doing theoretic work on this. And you see, that's funny because like, again, to me, you're much more on the theoretical side of things. <laughs> Maybe we're all the theory guy of another person. That might be the case, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, that's a variant of a question I often ask my guest is, like, how Bayesian is your field? But like, you are working on pretty Bayesian method. I mean, these are methods to apply to Bayesian models. So maybe the way I could ask you the question is, how diverse is your field? You know, how big is your pool of co-authors, if you will, for papers and stuff like that? Yes, I think the sort of probabilistic circuits community is still rather small. So it's, it's growing every year, but I'd say there are not too many people at the moment working on that. Definitely gets more and more interest now, I have the impression, which is super cool to see. And, and maybe to still like answer your question is about how, how Bayesian is the field. <laughs> so the field on, uh, on probabilistic circuits is not necessarily very Bayesian. I think I'm one of the more Bayesian people in that field because of the stuff that I'm doing. So lots of the techniques are more frequentist techniques, even though it comes maybe more from a sort of Bayesian background, if you want to say so, but not necessarily. And I think I'm one of the more sort of Bayesian people that actually work on probabilistic circuits. Mm, interesting. Let's talk about what you're going to do now. Because as I said, you're in the middle of an international move. Well, at least intra-EU move. So, well, can you tell listeners where are you moving to and what are you going to do there? Yes, I'm in the middle of moving to Helsinki, to Finland. So I'm now in a beautiful Airbnb in Helsinki. And I'm going to start a position at Alto University, going to work together with Arno Solin, 
who did a lot of work on Gaussian processes and uh, stochastic processes in general. And this is kind of the setup. What am I going to do is a good question. I think it's still a little bit open. So I'm definitely going to work a little bit more on the intersection of sort of uh, Gaussian processes and Bayesian neural networks. And I'm also going to continue working on probabilistic circuits, probably also from a Bayesian perspective, simply because this is sort of what I think is interesting to do. And there are lots of open questions, I think, still to be answered on probabilistic circuits. What exactly we'll see. (laughs) And I'm hoping to be able to also do a little bit more on Turing. So we have some pretty cool ideas. We'll see how everything will turn out time-wise and how things will happen. But so there are lots of options and lots of ideas hanging around. And what will be actually then the stuff I'm going to do is I think we'll see. I'm quite excited to learn also more about drastic differential equations because I never really did anything with them. And Arno's lab doing a lot of work in this direction. Yeah, indeed. And that would be really cool also to do something probabilistic circuits maybe towards this direction. Yeah, we'll see. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, that sounds super exciting. And indeed, like Arlo Solin's lab, like it's doing a really great job and super interesting job. I mean, that's like, I really, I can't wait to see uh, what you you guys are going to come up with. But like, uh, indeed, already like the work they do on Bayesian non-parametrics methods is really, really super interesting. If I remember correctly, Arno co-authored the book or maybe just authored a book about uh, PDEs, right? Yeah, he co-authored this. Yes, yeah, there are two authors. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think we'll put that link in the show notes because that's a that's a good idea. Yeah, very very great book. Definitely gonna put that in the show notes for listeners. I think the PDF version of the book is pretty available. So definitely go check this out if you're into differential equations. Yes, yeah, so actually, we talked already quite uh, well. We mentioned already quite a lot Bayesian non-parametrics methods, and we talked about like neural networks, about the Gaussian processes, etc. And you're specialized in these methods. So, can you broadly explain to listeners what these methods entail? Why we call them non-parametrics, and most importantly, can you talk about your favorite method here? Okay. And explain what this method is. <laughs> yes, I will try. Yeah. Because non-parametrics, I guess listeners are already quite familiar with it because I had Elisaveta Semenova on the show to talk about patient neural nets and Gaussian processes. We explained what this is. Aki Vetari also was on the show. So I guess people are familiar with that. But you, what, what's your favorite? What it is? Yeah, as you said, many people are probably already quite familiar with it. So I... I think a very nice BNP prior to understand BNP is is a Gaussian process, essentially, because you're sort of coming from a parametric view where you have a regression model or you have sort of a parametrized function, right? And then you're you're placing priors over those parameters. And GPs, you rather go sort of a step backwards, right? Instead of placing priors directly on the parameters, you instead place a prior on the functions directly. So it's kind of like a... Nice mathematical concept, I think, uh, in BNP, uh, what you do is that you often go to an infinite dimensional space and then surprisingly things get easier. And well, this is all, of course, fortunately also because then the marginal distributions are always finite. And my favorite BNP is, so for the 
sort of the beauty of it, I would say GPs, definitely. And there's a the joke at Cambridge that at the end, everything is a GP. And what I personally find quite exciting are, of course, Dichle processes. But this is more because I'm sort of biased towards mixture distributions. So SPNs can be understood as a exponentially large mixer distribution. So you're talking about Dirichlet uh, processes, right? Yes, correct. So I'm quite a fan of the Dirichlet processes, even though they are awful when it comes to uh, inference to some extent. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> they are very hard. Yeah, it's very nice concept. Let's say like this, and there is some really nice work on hierarchical Dirichlet processes, and there are nested Dirichlet processes, and so on and so forth. With all of those awful analogies towards food, which I don't quite like, but <laughs> <laughs> this is maybe the only thing that I don't don't like with the BNP community is that people sort of feel that they have to make those analogies with like, Chinese restaurants and Indian buffets and whatnot. But uh, yeah, yeah. And by the way, if people are interested in in directly processes, which, as you said, are super hard to work with and, and especially simple from. Karin Knudsen was here to talk about that in episode four. So it was like the very beginning of the podcast and yeah, an entire show dedicated to that and the work she does in Boston working on uh, medical data and using direct lab processes. So definitely super, super interesting show. I mean, the good thing about these labels is that they are not heavy tailed. So you can, so there's a really nice paper on truncated random measures. And the nice thing is you can just truncate them and just learn the truncated version. So that when you then have a pit manure process, something that is heavy tailed, then all of this falls apart and <laughs> you can't do this very well anymore. And there are also some really nice recent papers where you can sort of inference efficiently in the process mixture models or hierarchical digitally process mixtures. But because it's most often a, a discrete space, stuff just gets not very nice <laughs> to work with. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that if you're in a discrete space, you're going to have a, a hard time. But maybe if you have the, the reference of uh, this paper, we can put that in the show notes. Yes, I can do that. Yeah. Definitely. So actually, let's talk now about another method that's dear to you because you work a lot. Well, I don't know if it's even a method. I mean, it's more of a concept, I guess. But you work a lot on some product networks. So can you tell us <laughs> what, what that is uh, first and uh, when is it useful? Like, why are you working a lot on this? Yes, good question. <laughs> so some product networks, they were in, introduced in, in 2011 by Hunter and Poon and Pedro Dominguez. And essentially based on prior work that is on arithmetic circuits. And nowadays we sort of have this umbrella class of probabilistic circuits in which some product networks fall as a special case. But they were initially uh, published as a new model, so to say. And as I already said previously, so the nice thing about those models, not only some product networks, but probabilistic circuits in general, is that, that they allow us to do certain computations efficiently. So in some product networks, we can do integration efficiently and exactly, and we can compute moments and uh, we can do con conditioning and all of those sort of interesting probabilistic inference tasks. And so this is actually really handy if you really sort of take probabilistic modeling and probabilistic machine learning seriously, right? So many probabilistic machine learning models and tools sort of focusing on 
more or less solely on the part where you're interested in representing a complex probability distribution. Right? You have variational autoencoders, GANs, and all kinds of different techniques. And uh, once you actually want to use them for probabilistic inference, you're sort of stuck with having to use approximate inference techniques or Monte Carlo integration or whatever, right? And uh, SPNs and probabilistic circuits are nice in the way that they just out of the box allow you to do this exactly. And apart from SPNs, so there are other forms of probabilistic circuits, which are even, so SPNs are sort of like the, the least strict case of probabilistic circuits. And you can think of those as sort of a composition of uh, probability distributions, right? And in SPNs, traditionally, so what we do, or in probabilistic circuits also, what we do is we have usually some simple tractable input distributions, so some probability distributions like univariate Gaussian distribution or categorical distribution or something like this. And then we compose this distribution as you would usually do it in a probabilistic model, right? And we could sort of form a mixture distribution, right? And the mixture distribution is essentially a special case of a probabilistic circuit. Another special case would be a product distribution, okay? And, and this is essentially what a sum product network is. It's a network that explicitly represents a mixture distribution that consists of mixtures and product distributions, okay? And it does it in that way that whenever you have to compute uh, integration, those integrations sort of drop down to the input distributions, and all you have to do is integration on tractable input distributions, so you can always do this efficiently, and then you simply propagate the result upwards, and you have the answer, which is super cool, of course. <laughs> and, and then you can have other restrictions on those kind of models, right? You can sort of say, okay, uh, now in a mixture distribution, what I have is I usually have an interpretation as a latent variable, right? I usually interpret a mixture distribution as integrating over some latent variable set, right? Now, what, what I could do is I could say, okay, now what I want is I want something where I don't have a latent variable in the interpretation, but I, I sort of want to have that the mixer distribution is actually kind of like a categorical distribution, right? That every child of that mixer distribution represents uh, one state of a certain random variable. And then you can build up, uh, build this sort of in your network architecture. So that means actually the output of this mixture distribution is deterministic, right? So it's not stochastic anymore. And if you do this for all of the mixture distributions, which are not mixture distributions anymore, right? You have a fully deterministic model at the end. So you can not only do integration tasks exactly, but you can even do even more. You can do map inference exactly, and so on and so forth. So the whole field of probabilistic circuits kind of lives from sort of understanding I would say, properties of compositional functions that allow us to do computations efficiently. And then you can sort of integrate those freely, right? You can, one thing is what we can do is we can sort of understand sort of which compositions lead to which tractable inference scenarios. And, but you can also use this in your modeling approach, right? You can say, okay, I actually want to be able to to map inference in this and this and that case, right? Don't have to be able to compute uh, integrals over that random variable, right? So you can sort of design your composition functions accordingly also. Yeah, that sounds super interesting. The way I think about it is essentially that what we do in Bayesian stuff is we encode assumptions in our priors. Yeah. 
And what we can do with probabilistic circuits, we can encode assumptions, essentially, about the inference task that we're interested in, into the composition function. Let me show you how to be a good baby. Hey folks, as I told you at the beginning, this episode is brought to you by Tidelift, and I'm really proud of it. In a nutshell, Tidelift helps organizations effectively manage the open source behind modern applications, including the tools to create customizable catalogs of non-good, proactively maintained open source packages backed by Tidelift and its open source maintainer partners. For instance, PyMC3, that I'm sure you all love, is part of the Tidelift subscription. So if you are using PyMC3 in your organization, you can seamlessly and efficiently integrate it into your organization's software policies and workflows. So it's nice, right? So go ahead and check out tidelift.com to learn more. Okay, something I'm thinking about is, uh, do you have like an, an interesting example to give listeners an idea of when these kind of uh, networks are useful? I know that you worked in the signal processing lab, but like you're, you didn't really do applied work there. But like, for instance, I'm guessing that this is used in, in this field. Uh, do you know other fields that, that use these kind of, of methods and of networks and why that would be useful there? Yes, I'm aware that it's been used in robotics. And those are areas where you're interested in having an interpretation of the model. And additionally, the flexibility that you can sort of model very complex distributions. And maybe something that is not necessarily so applied that I worked on is basically that you can use the same idea to speed up inference and Gaussian processes. Right? So, so usually inference and Gaussian processes scales sort of unfortunate, <laughs> let's say it like this. So it scales cubic, and now the question is, how can you make it more efficient? And there are all kinds of different ways so to inducing points or... You use expert-based approaches and so on and so forth. And what you can also do is you can also just sort of follow that path of what we do in probabilistic circuits and then think about how can this help to speed up inference and in Gaussian processes. And what happens is that and so there's a very classical approach to Gaussian processes, which is called naive local experts. And in naive local experts, you sort of do the dumbest thing that you can think of in order to speed up inference in Gaussian processes. And that is, you take the covariate space and you just chop it up into parts. So it's basically a partitioning of the covariate space, and then you use a, a local Gaussian process in every of those parts, and, and you're done, right? This, of course, has big issues, right? So then you have discontinuities and so on and so forth. And is this partition that you actually choose, does it make sense? Is that supported by the data? And so on and so forth. So in probabilistic circuits, we sort of do the same but we are not relying on one partition of the covariate space. If you just sort of do the same, but with probabilistic circuits, what you end up is you end up with an exponentially large mixture over possible naive local expert models. So it's exponential in the depth of the network. And then sort of nice things happen automatically. So you can now perform inference as efficient as in naive local expert models, which is kind of cool because that sort of just depends on how much you chop down your covariate space. And the other thing is that because of the way probabilistic circuits or well, SPNs are essentially are, we can get a nice interpretation of what this model does. And this interpretation is essentially 
that we perform Bayesian model averaging over naive local expert models. Even if you'd like to, you could even sort of look at the weights that are learned. And all of this stuff is, of course, done kind of exactly and could interpret, okay, which partitions make sense and so on and so forth. Or you could uh, use different uh, hyperparameters for different parts of the partition. So in the paper, we have some experiments also where we show sort of how you could model non-stationary data with that. And you get sort of all kinds of funny side effects that are actually pretty beneficial. Yeah, sounds really amazing. If you have some resources about that that we can put in the show notes for listeners who are interested, definitely send them my way because these are quite tricky topics. So podcast is good to give them an introduction, but I, I guess uh, people will have to, to read a, a bit more. But I think this was a good uh, high-level introduction. So thanks a lot for this, uh, Martin. Super interesting. Now I'd like to focus uh, maybe on a more practical matter now that we have depleted our listener's brain uh, with, <laughs> uh, with complicated mathematical models. Uh, let's come back to Earth because nowadays, as we said, like you work mostly in Julia, thanks to the development of Turing. But can you walk us through your programming journey? Because Julia is quite of a recent language, so I guess you used other languages before coming to it. Yeah, so I, I used quite a bit of different programming language over the years. So I started off doing lots of programming in C and C++, and then eventually went to doing image processing in Java, which I cannot recommend to do, but uh, <laughs> that was what we did. And then it did work a little bit on with MATLAB. Uh, and then at some point I sort of was before the decision um, what to do, because I sort of started my PhD and I went into a new field with this work on support networks, which I have never worked on before. And then uh, it's of course always the question, so what are you going to do? What are you going to use? Are you going to I was, was clear I'm not going to stick to Java because that might be a nice programming language for enterprise applications, but definitely not interesting for research applications. And MATLAB has its own issues, let's say it like this, <laughs> especially when it comes to licensing. And, and then the question was simply whether I'm going to learn Python and going to try Python or whether I'm going to try out this new language called Julia, which was super recent at the time. And I think very few people were using it. And I, I approached it very sort of naively, I think. I implemented a paper on SPNs in Python, and I re-implemented the same in Julia. And then I just looked at the runtime. And then I tried to tweak the Python code, and I implemented C routines for the Python codes, and so on and so forth. And I couldn't beat Julia. <laughs> <laughs> And so that was kind of the decision was made simply by the fact that a very naive implementation of an algorithm in Julia was, I think, 10 times faster than the Python version of it. And it was very difficult to beat and to, to get to the same speed. And uh, Julia is a, is a very beautiful language, I think. It's, I'm very happy it gets more and more interest and people uh, are more and more starting to use uh, Julia and to write code in Julia. I think it's... It deserves it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this is definitely a language I'm very curious about. I mean, the day where I will finally have time to, to work on another language. If I had to do that today, it would clearly be Julia. I really love how the language is structured. Turing, sauce, frameworks like that are like super interesting. I really love the, the design, the API. 
And as you said, the language itself has several uh, interesting uh, characteristics. And also, I gotta say, the community is also super nice. I mean, all the the encounters I had with Julia people were really super, like super nice, very interesting people, and also very passionate people. So it was always great. So I mean, and this is also, I mean, when you choose a language, you're also choosing its community. And I think it's definitely important to take that into consideration. And I think that's also why in the end, I like Python and I stayed with Python and with PyMC3 because it's like, you know, it's the often the saying goes like, you come for the language and you stay for the community. And like definitely for the PyMC community is amazing. So it helped me, you know, stay and work more in these and improve the package, contribute to it. I think the Julia part here is also, this is also something that goes in the plus column for Julia. Definitely keep it up, guys. <laughs> yeah, I think Julia, as you said, has a really nice community. And I mean, what I personally also liked is the, the fact that it's very close to uh, scientific communities. If you're anyhow doing research and lots of sort of stuff that vaguely falls into scientific computing, you already are in a community that mostly does stuff like this. So you have lots of very intelligent, very clever people doing very crazy stuff sometimes but also really cool stuff. And yeah, and you get answers to complicated questions and people organize JuliaCon every year, which is uh, probably the nicest conference I've uh, been. <laughs> and yeah, but I think it also depends sort of how to say it. I don't think it makes sense to see program languages as a religion or something like this. So I, I don't think it makes sense to try to bring people to switch to Julia, right? Programming language, in my opinion, first, it's still like a tool to do something and I think people should use whatever makes most sense for them. Yeah, agreed. We live in a time where we're so lucky to have so many amazing probabilistic programming frameworks. Definitely, yeah. And so, yeah, the idea is like maybe not having a one PPL to rule them all kind of thinking, but more like, well, basically we have a lot of frameworks which use state-of-the-art HMC samplers and like state-of-the-art samplers. Just pick your favorite in your favorite language and then you will stick to it because this is not easy. You will go through hard times where nothing works. So you really have to love the framework and the language you're using because it will help you go through these hard times. So just pick your favorite and go with it. So actually, yes. So we talked about why you find Julia attractive and its assets. I'm also curious what you think are its weaknesses, either for adoption from beginners or for its future development. Good question. What are its weaknesses? I'd say Julia has very few weaknesses, my opinion, but I'm probably very biased. <laughs> and that's why I ask this question. I always yes. Hello. <laughs> So I'd say one weakness, which is not necessarily a weakness of the language, I'd say, is that things can get a bit scattered. So um, especially when it comes to automatic differentiation frameworks, there are some really great tools in Julia, but it's not as sort of straightforward and well-developed as certain tools in Python, I'd say. There are some efforts now by Kino Fischer to, to sort of get a proper AD in Julia, but I think this is something, especially in Turing, we feel this a lot, that integrating with AD tools is a bit tedious. A, we have to provide interfaces to all kinds of different ADs. So 
because if you want to be compatible to certain deep learning libraries, then you have to be compatible to their AD system that they use, right? Then you have to fix bugs that come with their ADs. You have to fix bugs that come with other libraries that are, again, related to AD issues. So there's a lot of work that we have to put in and that, that we put in into basically getting Turing working smoothly with different AD frameworks. And that's been pretty painful. And I think now it's in a pretty good state, but this is definitely one of the issues I see with Julia. I think it's going to converge towards uh, something and then it's going to be much better than it is now uh, or it was maybe a year ago. But apart from that, I think it's still a reasonably young language. So even though Julia in itself exists for many years, right, it's still sort of, I think, quite capable of evolving in a way that it's not going to run into many issues, I think. Yeah. Yeah, plus like the language being still quite young and not just super widespread, you also have the possibility to move quickly, be more able to do breaking changes and stuff like that because you have less less uh, latency in the community. So I think that's also a good thing, <laughs> definitely. And actually, when, when I talked with uh, Cameron Pfeiffer, that's also something he told me, but about Turing, like... That actually the nice thing is that usually when you find that something is missing in Turing or not very well implemented, you have the opportunity to do that and just break things in the next major version, which is great because you have less latency in the user base. Actually, let's talk a bit more about Turing because time is flying by. So I really want to talk about that. So Turing is the package you contribute to. Uh, lots of people to do probabilistic programming in Julia. I'm sure listeners are familiar with it now. We've covered it quite a lot on the show now. So maybe, well, tell us why you started using it. Because again, I think people know what Turing is now. Maybe just give again the elevator pitch if you want. But Mainly, why did you started using it and how did you become involved in the development? I'm going to answer the question the other way around <laughs> <laughs> because that's more how it happened. So I got involved into developing Turing at the time when I was visiting PhD student at Cambridge and was working on something completely unrelated, um, so on Bayesian learning for SPNs. And I had a chat with uh, Hong, and we sort of ended up talking about a, a workshop paper that I wrote some years ago, which was on a Julia library on Bayesian on Permatics. So as I said in the very beginning of this recording, that I think programming languages are a really nice tool to understand stuff better. So this is often also the approach that I go for, and this was the approach for me to sort of learn some concepts of Bayesian non Permatics. Uh, so I ended up writing a library that consists uh, implementations and inference algorithms for different Bayesian parametric models, which at the time was very scattered. So if you had some, say you had the, I don't know, hierarchical Dijkley process mixture model or something like this, or you had the Pitt-Manure process mixture and so on and so forth, you would have to look up the implementations in all kinds of different languages some stuff was written in Python, some stuff that was written in C, you had some code that was written in MATLAB, and so on and so forth. And I was curious to learn all about all those different non-parametric priors about, uh, over partitions. So I implemented them 
and implement different infant schemes and learned quite a lot about that. And Hong was aware of this workshop paper. So we kind of started talking about that. And then he said, yeah, so he has this Julia package, which is called Turing, where he works on together with Kai. And whether I would be interested to, to join developing this probabilistic programming language. And so that's how I ended up uh, getting involved with Turing. And then briefly after the Julia con, where Julia 1.0 was released, we started off and hacked into the night and ported Julia uh, Turing to, to the new Julia version and did all kinds of implementations, started MCMC Chains, which is now used by all kinds of frameworks. And I think it's also integrated with uh, Arvis. Yeah, maybe just like you can just explicit what MCMC Chains is. Oh, okay. MCMC, <laughs> of course. So MCMC Chains is essentially a, a Julia package. So in Turing, everything is very much its own package. So in the beginning, it was one monolithic system. And now we separated all of the different algorithms and different parts into individual packages so that it's easier to maintain and easier to reuse by the Julia community. And MCMC Chains is essentially a package that sort of contains all kinds of diagnostics that you can apply. It contains tools to visualize your inference results, to store and save your, your inference results, and so on and so forth. This is essentially the main goal, I'd say, is uh, diagnostics. Yeah. And Hong, who you talked about, is like the main creator of Turing, right? Yes, I'd say Hong and Kai together. Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay, nice. Maybe if you think it's interesting, we can also link to the Julia workshop paper you were mentioning uh, in the show notes. If you <laughs> well, it's heavily outdated now. So. <laughs> okay. Could be a piece of history. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just quickly, out of curiosity, how many contributors are, are you now on the Turing uh, team? Oh, that's a good question. I think I have to actually look that up because I don't know that by heart. But there are quite a few. Let me briefly check. I'd say in the core team, what I would consider the core team. So we have Hong and we have Kai and myself. And then we have Mohammed who did a lot of work dynamic PPL, so which is kind of like the back end. Tor did a lot of work on bijectors and variational inference. And then we of course have Cameron you talk to, right? And Cameron basically took over the MCMC chains work and and did a lot of work on also, I think, map inference and so on and so forth. And David does a lot of work for us, too, and all kinds of parts. And then we have Sharon now, nowadays developing, which is also quite exciting, a Gaussian process library for Julia, or actually multiple uh, packages for Gaussian processes. So, so there's quite a, quite a big team. Everybody is working on it, more or less in the spare time. So I don't think there are too many people who sort of full-time work on touring. Everybody is doing it a little bit on the side. And then, of course, we have all kinds of Google Summer of Code contributors. I am supervising a master's student who is also contributing to touring. Yeah, that's super nice. And actually, as we said, there are many PPLs nowadays. So how do you think, how does touring fit into this landscape? And what do you think are its main strengths and weaknesses? I think touring, one of the nice part about Turing is that it's very nicely integrating with the Julia package landscape. 
right? So you can nicely use all kinds of different tools you can use, for example, Flux to learn Bayesian neural networks, or you can use some of the GP packages to integrate Gaussian processes with it. I think there's even some integration with SOS, and I think this is definitely one of the strengths. But this is, I think, more like general when it comes to PPLs in the Julia programming language. Within, within the Julia language, it's definitely, in my opinion, that Turing is just very thoroughly tested. And we put a lot of work in, in making sure that the inference techniques are actually correct and that they're robust. So it's not sort of, if you run Turing with a nuts sampler, it's not just like some naive nuts implementation, but it's actually something that Kai worked on very hard and tried to sort of really match the performance in Stan. And we're also doing active research, right? So most recently, Tor and, and Kai worked on, on some more advanced techniques for HMC inference, which is also going to be integrated in, in advanced HMC. So I think it's really nice because you get very, very thoroughly tested and good implementations of inference techniques through Turing, mostly for free. And then, well, and then you have basically this compositional inference scheme that you have in Turing that, that is uh, quite cool and that allows you to perform inference in all kinds of different models. So not just continuous models, but models that are that have discrete parameter spaces or mixed and so on and so forth. So I'm not, I'm not trying to claim that we are, we are doing that perfectly, but at least we have sort of the possibility to do that if it's necessary. Yeah. And is there some weaknesses that you guys are aware of and would like to improve? Yes. So the say the main weakness, if you say so, is definitely that at the moment where we have a very sort of simple approach to deal with models. An interview with Chet about SOS, right? And Chet does a lot of very complicated analysis of the models, which in his case have to be static models because otherwise it doesn't work. But nevertheless, he can do interesting transformations and reparameterizations and so on and so forth, which we can't do because we don't know anything about the model. This is the, ba the main, I think, weakness and issue that we have in Turing is that because we're trying to be so general, so you can have models with varying uh, number of parameters, uh, varying support, and so on and so forth, it really all can happen in your Turing model, trust control flow, and so on and so forth. Because we are going for such a very, very uh, general approach, we don't really know much about the model structure itself. So we can't reparameterize your model easily. We can't easily exploit that dependency structure that you have in the model. So this is the reason why my master student, uh, Philip, worked very hard on getting information about the dependency structure in Turing models. And we are going to sort of continue this work. And this is one of the main sort of topics in the near future, I'd say, for Turing to sort of improve the knowledge that we can gain through the model structure and exploit this for inference. Nice. And yeah, actually, let's talk a bit like before closing up the show, but let's talk a bit about the, the main new features and improvements that uh, you folks are working on for future versions of uh, Turing. In my opinion, one of the main topics is essentially exploiting the dependency structure in programs. Right. So uh, one thing I'm personally, of course, very interested in is using probabilistic circuits for inference. But in order to be able to do that, you need to be able to do transformations of the model or you need to be and you need to be able to sort of know a little bit more about the model than we do at the moment. 
And, and there are some interesting, some exciting ideas floating around how we could do that. And I think also the work that uh, Philip did is actually a quite interesting starting point for that. And the other sort of future topics, I'd say, are more towards also improving what we can do. <laughs> so right now we have particle filter methods, but those particle filter methods are can be quite slow because we don't we can't easily parallelize the computations even though you have kind of independent particles so this can be improved and we want to also add more sophisticated particle filtering methods at the moment it's really just like the bare minimum that is implemented yeah and particle filter method methods for listeners are particularly used for time series models right yes yes and so this is one thing, and the other thing is that currently we do support inference in Bayesian non-parametric models. Like you can perform inference over a DP mixture if you like to do that, but it's not going to be very efficient. And the goal would be to to sort of improve that and have some more tailored inference strategies for BMP models. In my point of view, specifically for BMP priors over over partitions. I think this is kind of like some of the main goals. Maybe one additional would be that sort of improving lots of things, improving diagnostics, improving integration with deep learning libraries. All of those things are existing, but they can all get much better, I think. Amazing. Can't wait for that. <laughs> okay, just very last question before we go to the last two questions. I'm wondering more generally, what does the future of PPLs look like to you? Which advances are you particularly excited <laughs> about? Yes, that's a good question. So I think one thing I'm interested in, maybe let's go completely uh, futuristic. <laughs> so I think in the midterm, it's always already quite obvious what is happening, right? It's going all more towards parallelism. There is this really nice Python-based PPL that is using JAX in the background and so on and so forth. And the same is going to happen with Turing. We're currently working a lot in this direction to have inference heavily paralyzed uh, on GPUs. But I think on the more in the more futuristic perspective, what would be cool to see and to, that might happen, or maybe it doesn't happen, uh, would, be, uh, <laughs> would be sort of more less traditional inference scenarios for a PPL, let's say like this, like having causal inference in PPLs or having um, other more interesting uh, inference scenarios integrated directly. And sort of having this. And the other I would really like to see happening at some point is sort of an easier way to integrate your assumptions, your modeling assumptions. So I think the, so the Bayesian community likes to say, yeah, and we have this way of explicitly integrating your modeling assumptions. And that's all nice and fine. But if you don't know too much about statistics and about probability distributions, it's going to be pretty difficult on, even if you know about all of those things, it's still going to be pretty difficult to understand all of the implications and to understand sort of which priors to choose, in my opinion. So I think it's a little bit like a misleading statement that patients try to say, that try to make. And I'd really like to see a more intuitive way to specify your modeling assumptions in a PPL. I think lots of things go more and more towards sort of low-level APIs, but it would actually be for the user side, I think, would be much more beneficial to also have something that is a little bit more high-level than what a PPL already is, right? 
something where you don't have to necessarily specify the prior distribution, but instead you have some other way to specify the assumptions that you have on your data. Yeah, definitely. Uh, well, I would have a lot to say there, but uh, I mean, the show <laughs> is already getting quite long and uh, I should let you go, but definitely super interesting topic. Indeed, a lot of things to do in this in this regard, like choice of prior, eliciting priors, and helping people integrate their assumptions into the models uh, more easily. That's like super important, and really also what makes Bayesian methods super attractive and also intuitive, as you said, and more transparent. So it's like very very important. This part is like super important and core to the Bayesian methods, and actually. I had Paul Buchner on the show like last week, and I think through the magic of time travel, you will have heard his episode <laughs> when your episode goes out. So we exactly talked about that because he and Aki Vetari and a lot of other people are working a lot on this and they have exactly this kind of research project that they are doing, which is like a software assisted Bayesian workflow. So. It's exactly the kind of ideas you talked about. Yeah, this is very exciting. Doing stuff a little bit more in this direction. There's also some work which is called the Automated Statistician by Zubin Garamani, which also goes in this direction. I think there's there's a lot of interesting work. I haven't seen much in the PPL on implement actually integrated in PPL so far, but yeah, that's exactly the project that they are working on. So I mean Plus, I love, I really love this research, this user-focused research. I really love that. It's really interesting to see this kind of research really geared towards, okay, let's help people build better models based on best practices and just focus on what they are good at and then delegate everything we can to the computer where computers are better than us. <laughs> that makes a lot of sense. Okay, Martin, I really have to let you go now. But before that, I'm going to ask you the two questions I ask every guest at the end of the show. <laughs> so the first one is if you had unlimited time and resources, which problem would you try to solve? Yes, that's a difficult question, I find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think for me personally, one of the, of the key issues that we have in societies and in between societies is essentially that we have lots of inequalities between people and between societies. So I think this is kind of like one of the most important issues for me that would be, it's maybe unrealistic to some extent. I hope it's not, but I think sort of solving the issue of inequalities, I consider the most important issue. Well, that's quite the goal. <laughs> but hey, right. The premise of the question is if you had unlimited time and resources. So yes, of course. Yeah. Good answer. And second question is, if you could have dinner with any great scientific mind, dead, alive or fictional, who would it be? Yes, again, a question I thought about a little bit. Because, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, I think there were probably lots of great answers already. I haven't checked all of them. So my go-to would be, in order to sort of bring more equality, a female scientist, Rosalind Franklin, who you probably know on the discovery of the structure of DNA and sort of got overruled by her colleagues from Cambridge. And that would be very interesting, I think, to talk about that incident and about her life, which is, I think was largely affected by the inequalities that women in science face and talk about those kind of issues. Yeah, definitely a great choice. That plus also she was working on really fascinating topics, so would definitely make for a great conversation. Awesome. Really love this answer. Well, Martin, thank you. It was 
really, really great talking about Turing again and discovering about some product uh, networks and patient methods in general, patient non-parametrics methods in general. I hope listeners learned as much as me. And I'm sure uh, a lot of them are going to try your touring now. Congrats to you and thank you very much to you and the other core devs for this amazing project and for the free time you give to it. As usual, I'll put resources and a link to your website in the show notes for those who want to dig deeper. So um, thank you again, Martin, for taking the time and being on this show. Yeah, thank you a lot for the invitation. It was lots of fun. Thanks. Yeah, you bet. Bye. Bye. This episode of the Learning Bayesian Statistics podcast was brought to you by Tightlift. Tightlift helps organizations effectively manage the open source behind modern applications, accelerate development, cut costs, and reduce risk with the Tightlift subscription so you can create even more incredible software even faster. Learn more at tightlift.com. This has been another episode of Learning Bayesian Statistics. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show on your favorite podcatcher or on Podchaser, and visit learnbasedstats.com for more resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes that will help you reach true patient state of mind. That's learnbasedstats.com. Our theme music is Good Bayesian by Baba Brinkman, with MC Lars and Megaran. Check out his awesome work at bababrinkman.com. I'm your host, Alex Andorra. You can follow me on Twitter at Alex underscore Andorra, like the country. You can support the show and unlock exclusive benefits by visiting patreon.com slash learnbayesstats. Thanks so much for listening and for your support. You're truly a... Good Bayesian, change your predictions after taking information in. And if you're thinking I'll be less than amazing, let's adjust those expectations. Let me show you how to be a good Bayesian. Change calculations after taking fresh data in. Those predictions that your brain is making. Let's get them on a solid foundation.